With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom. Simply visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Good morning and welcome. You are with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I'm Marie and joining me now for a story that uh, all of us here in Reality Check Radio are really getting our teeth into because it has been one of the things that broke very, very quietly just prior to Christmas and has sort of slipped under the radar for many people. And here at Reality Check, we are certainly not going to let that happen. Uh, And that is the the new guidelines of the Midwifery Council that were very, very quietly released at the end of November. And joining me now is Sarah Henderson, writer and member of Manawahini Kōrero. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? Good morning, Marie. I'm I'm well, thank you. And, and thank you very much for having me. I yeah, we, um, as I said to you, this, this dropped, and you wrote an incredible article in Plain Sight, December 8, called Mandated Cultural Humility for New Zealand Midwives. I read it when it dropped. I said to my producer, and she said the same thing to me. It's like, we need to talk to Sarah. And then, of course, I spoke to our wonderful Dailandi, um just when I got home uh, just over a week ago, and she briefly uh, mentioned this. Yeah. And I thought, right, the timing is perfect. We need to get our teeth into this. We really do need to have a look. And your article, for anybody who has heard about this, wants to know a little bit more, your article is a really good leaping off point because you go through the timeline, you have all the information there. So for those who are wanting to get started on this, just let us know, what did our dear Midwifery Council do at the end of November that has sparked all of this off for us. Right. I had been waiting for the Midwifery Council to notify us of their next move ever since November 2022 when they put an article. They did an article in Stuff, an interview in Stuff, talking about how they were going to remove the words for women and baby and breastfeeding and childbirth and so on. And one of and the reasons that they stated in that article at the time uh, that they, they didn't really seem to make sense, and it was a lot to do with uh, cultural imperatives. This was the way forward. This was going to uh, usher in a new standard of healthcare, uh, f- specifically for Māori by Māori. This was the the rationale that they were putting forward to do this. Um, and I had I got involved. I had just joined Manawahine Kōrero as a member at the time and to, together we, we wrote a, a group letter to the council um, and it was, you know, we, we spent a couple of weeks writing that letter together, really looking at all of the language and looking up translations and looking up meanings and really thinking about what it was that they were suggesting because it's such a, an important topic. And this was during a submission period, so they were calling for submissions, correct? That's correct, yes. They they released the proposal again uh, in updated form for a second round of feedback. The first one was in March 22, um, and that feedback they, they actually, <laughs> that feedback came back with an 80% of thereabouts negative response, and they had actually included their own feedback in that feedback round. So... They wrote about themselves how wonder what a wonderful job they were doing, and then the second time, rather belatedly, it occurred to them that perhaps they shouldn't do that, um, and so they took out their own feedback, and the negative responses shot up to ninety ninety point eight percent opposed. So when at, at Christmas time, or just before Christmas, um, I'd noticed on the Women's Rights Party Twitter page. Because they never responded to our letter and they didn't put the feedback up from the second round, I've been watching because I was so disturbed by what I had seen. And so I'd, I'd noticed and I looked for, I'd seen the, the tweet on the Women's Rights Party page that they had made their decision. So I went to the website and I, I went to find it and buried in their pre-Christmas chief executive's newsletter, e-newsletter, was a couple of paragraphs letting letting people know anyone who was going to open this newsletter 
um, that they had taken a unanimous decision. So they'd voted, the entire council voted unanimously to adopt the new scope of practice and that it would come in, that they, they had a few extra steps, which they didn't specify what those were, and then that they were hoping to get it ratified and, and enacted, enforced by the 1st of July. So, um, you know, the first, the, I, the, I basically didn't do anything else because this was very concerning to me. The the language itself of the scope, other other people, including Suzanne Levy and, and Deb Hayes, um, have talked about the difficulty of regulating the scope and actually, actually making it a practical working document for any midwife because the language is so vague that it's impossible to tell who the patient actually is, you know, who the client actually is, um, who they're looking after, what the expectations are for, for who they who and how they're going to look after those people. Um, even the health outcomes are very vague, you know, well-being is actually a broad term. And they're responsible now for the the health and or the the cultural safety and well-being of the entire Fano, which is a, an extraordinary job description to be responsible for the wealth, well-being and, and cultural safety of an entire whānau, and it certainly doesn't describe a midwife's job, um, in my opinion. No, that, that is literally saying how long is a piece of string. Indeed. Yeah. You know. So again, uh, and, and my, my interest in this, Deb Hayes and I have been speaking a, a lot. Um, she reached out to me, um, the midwife, who started the petition, she reached out to me not long after the article and we've spoken quite a lot since. And we were talking the other day about stakeholders and stakeholders are the people that the Midwifery Council claim to have contacted and asked for their feedback. So that includes the, the College of Midwives, the, the um, Maternity Services Commun- uh, Consumer Council, uh, nursing associations, anyone with an interest, uh, an official interest in childbirth, Ministry of Health, Te Whatu Ora, all of these organisations. But it also includes the public. We're a stakeholder too in our own care. Um, and obviously, ultimately, the Ministry of Health, which is responsible for the Midwifery Council, are answerable to us. You know, we're not answerable to them and we're certainly not answerable to the Midwifery Council about what constitutes appropriate care for ourselves. And my own background, uh, as a, in, in, aside from being a woman and a mother um, who hopes to be a grandmother one day and wants, wants my grandchildren to be properly delivered um, and, the, and their mother to be looked after appropriately, I'm also a former newborn hearing screener, so I've worked on maternity wards. I was I got involved in hearing screening because my interest is in language. My background is in languages. I, I I've spent many years studying various languages. I think I'm up to six. I don't speak them fluently because um, I don't practice, but they come back, you know. Mm. Um, and linguistics is important too. And so when you're looking at the language of this document, what really jumps out straight away is that the syntax is wrong. The, uh, the the definitions of words are stretched beyond all common sense. The the meaning is subtly changed in such a way that there's a there's a hidden meaning, if you like, underneath all of this language, and that's where people really I would like for people to understand that it's not as simple as a midwifery council run amok with, with some ideas. They actually have a, an agenda. It, it, there's an agenda at play here um, that, isn't, that has nothing to do with the well-being of women. No, so this is what got my spidey sense up when I read your article, it, yeah. particularly in the space that I've played in, right, which has been in critical social justice. So I've been in these murky waters since 2018. Yes. I read your article and I looked at some of the language that was used. When COVID happened in early 2020, I said to somebody, you just watch. This is the Trojan horse yes. that the ideologues have been looking for. Yes. And the timing of this fits perfectly in exactly what has happened. And what I'm talking about is just what you've alluded to 
is the language because that is what those who work in the space of critical social justice do is they appropriate the language and they manipulate it yes. in order and they they dilute it yes. in order to create a new ideological direction and Let's sort of pull into sort of some of that because some of the examples for that and some of the key players that actually led that manipulation of language because it isn't a midwife, it isn't a medical professional, it is a bona fide educational gender queer and in adverted commas academic that was very much at the heart of this. Yes, a number of them. Before we go on, um, just to, I, I have a hypothesis, which um, a- anybody who spends any length of time talking to me will will eventually hear. These are this language, and it's. Um, I, I, I think this is important because it, it, there's a there's a lot of conversation happening around at the moment about you know people um, people talk about the the woke mind virus or this this way of thinking um which is which is a symptom i believe but the language itself the the woke speak if you will for want of a better word is in, is is in fact the vector for this mind virus if mm. If, for want of a better description. It's cultish in its nature. Cultish in its nature. And yeah. what we all do is um, every single human being who speaks a language speaks a linguistic code, one at least one. And the, most of us speak more than one because we have to. to and linguistic codes can be adjusted. Uh, the way that I'm speaking now might not necessarily be the same way that I would speak if I was going to a dinner party or if I was going to the, the mother and baby child group, for example, or if I was switching outside my own social class, my own social group, then I might switch codes to let people know that I can interact with groups from any any area. And we all do this, and this is uh, there are statistically measurable and observable codes in New Zealand and everywhere else that uh, that belong to various communities. And this is what we want in any any language arena. We want there to be lots of codes. We want there to be code switches who can carry the ideas and concepts and words from one group to another. This is the normal process of language enrichment. But occasionally, you get a corrupt code. A code that interferes with normal cognitive function, the, where the words mean the opposite to what they actually say, where the syntax is changed, where the rules about what you are allowed to say are ever more prescribed and ever more narrow. And if we think about the way that neurons connect in the brain, and especially related to language, and the left-right brain hemispheres, this kind of approach to language and speaking this code has a very powerful effect on the brain. And it seems to interfere with people's ability to determine, or it seems to create some kind of cognitive dissonance, whereby the only way to resolve this dissonance is either to adopt the ideology out in, in, in totality or to reject it outright. And the people who try to sit on the fence they seem to go. They they get in in my observation. They don't seem well. They become very unhappy. They become very confused. They, they become very very disconnected. Very very disconnected. They really struggle to communicate. And this is this is happening around the world. And every time this code enters a new language, no border is is going to keep it out. No mask. No language can set, can be protected from it, and it it once it's entered a new language, it changes. It responds like all languages do because they're alive in in the you know on their in their own selves to the language that they're in. So wokeies is different in New Zealand to how it is in Australia to how it is in America. Similar in the same way that our ordinary language is, but different again with our own cultural expressions. So mm. when we're looking at the Midwifery Council and we're thinking about this linguistic code, they're writing in this. They have all been brainwashed into speaking this way. Um, and they've been at it for years. They've been at it for four years in this very 
tight-knit, self-referential, self-aggrandizing movement where they're just telling each other that they're doing a great job. And when you watch the videos of them speaking, it it's quite shocking. It's it, You can see the impact that four years of brainwashing has had on them. They they speak in very strange ways. Their body language is extraordinary. They they rant about uh, discoveries and journeys. Uh, journeys. journeys. And, yes, that's right. Journeys. Just ju- so many journeys. Uh, the word journey has been used abused in their documents. You know, metaphorical journeys. These are metaphorical journeys of looking within and being indoctrinated. They're mm-hmm. describing their experience of being indoctrinated into a cult. Um, so that's, you know, that's where we're, we're at with this code. And the language underneath uh, reflects the postmodernist theories, um, queer theories, critical social justice theories, including queer theory, critical race theory, and, and equity theories, um, which aren't, aren't well described as yet. I think equity got left off a little bit. It was easier to point at well, critical. E- equity, funnily enough, was the, the, the big buzzword prior to COVID. And then it kind of, yeah. and you know, all of a sudden, equity replaced quality everywhere. And I know when I had conversations with people pre-COVID, around the work I was doing with social justice. And the one explanation I would give to them is I would say, well, give me the definition of equality. And then it's like, would you treat everybody equally? Right, now give me the definition of equity. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the same thing, isn't it? No, it's no, not. No, it's not. Yes. Yes. And and of course they had been and because you said the last four years, see I would actually argue it's been going on at least for the last decade. But absolutely yeah, but it's certainly become come to the fore. I mentioned before about some of those that um that led this. And so let's look at that because this again is yes. the, is the midwives, right? So the midwifery council. So on that council, a lay person would expect that that council would be made up of a group of their peers, and they would be taking advice from, as you said before, key stakeholders that have a direct relationship for the care of a mother and a child in the birthing process. But that is not the case. No. The, so the, 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 the scope of practice was when we look at the council structure, you have the council uh, body corporate, which is a responsible authority under the HCPAA um, or the Health Practitioners Competence Assurance Act 2003, and they are responsible. There are 18 responsible authorities in New Zealand who are legislated for for the purpose of regulating their own profession. So physiotherapy, for example, has a council. And I think acupuncture has a council. Specialised health professions have their own body that is legislated for in order to determine that the practitioners are safe and competent to practice. So that's the council's role. Um, And to administer all of the services that midwives actually need. So that's their job. Um, And they have, within the council, they created a project team that is, although they're under the auspices of the council, they're actually their own team and this is the team that have come up with the scope and they're headed by two chairs uh, one Dr Judith Makara Cooper um, a, a PhD not an actual doctor the same again with Dr Hope Tupara um, she is the co-chair so they've got the uh, the two co-chairs there. So what are their doctorates in? Uh, I forget I'm sorry. So <laughs> um, not so so not they're not medical doctors so these are PhDs Yes. Um, so they're academics, essentially. They're academics and midwives. Um, and uh, Dr. Tupara is also, um, the last time I checked, she was the president of the Māori Women's Welfare League. And uh, Dr. Makara Cooper has spent much of her career working in Bangladesh for, in midwifery. So they've got quite illustrious careers behind them and they're in positions of responsibility and uh, a great deal of trust has been entrusted, you know, put in them to run this process and then under them they have 17 other uh, other people on this project team which they've called the collaborative reference group uh two of them are men uh just lay people they're not obstetricians or, or they're they're community members who have contributed uh not all of them are midwives some of them are just 
community mem- members of the public, and then the rest of them are midwives. So they've they've been collaborating and talking together for a lot of it was over Zoom over the last four years, um, and they've uh, they they've consulted with and used as sounding boards other academics. So that would include Dr. Elizabeth Kirikiri mm-hmm. um, and her her PhD and thesis. A former, dis- former disgraced Green MP for those that are having a bell ring but can't quite place the name. Yeah, continue. Yes, that one, yes. Um, we were kicked out of her own party for bullying everybody. So there was her, and she's obviously a queer, she's a queer theorist. Her PhD was written largely on, on sexual behaviour, um, and she, she's, she said in her PhD on page 82 that there is no evidence of any ideas about gender in pre-colonial Te That's quite clear. Mm. Um, I have interviewed Di uh, formally on this. She has more than one or two th- nuggety things to say on uh, Dr. <laughs> yes, and um and and well deserved. This betrayal of Kerikeri, not only of her own thesis, but of history in general, to teach the Midwifery Council false history, I find very just incredibly offensive um, and objectionable. And then we have Dr. George Parker, um, who's a, a self-proclaimed non-binary woman who works at, uh, she's a lecturer at uh, Victoria University, and she's also a senior health lecturer at the College of Midwives, or was, um, and she's certainly very involved there and has a, a, a great deal of interest in seeing midwifery education be converted to queer theory education. And again, her videos, uh, when she speaks, most people have a, 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 a quite a physical and visceral reaction. We can all tell when somebody is not quite compass mentis, I think, their body language. And George certainly has the sort of ecstatic look to her when she talks about mm. mandating people to be culturally humble to her own group of a special interest group um, in a way that most people find quite disturbing. Um, I, I looked at one of these videos, a fanatical actually would be, that was the descriptor that I would use. And as you're to reference your discussion about linguistics before, if you were a lay person coming in to listen to one of the videos from Dr. Parker, honestly, any person off the street would be thinking, okay, and I, I understand that those are English words coming from her mouth, but none of them make absolute any sense whatsoever because she is speaking a very high-level form of wokish that essentially is, uh, they like to use the term of those of us who are critical of critical social justice, that we like to dog whistle to people on our side. Well, they have a full canine cacophony going on and hers was a symphony par excellence. So really couldn't put that better. It was That's beautifully put. It really is. It's I had to um, transcribe it. So that I, so that I could read it and and actually understand it, you know, and and see what it was that she was saying, and it, it's largely gibberish, um, but the um, but the the underlying message is cult- culturally, we can now redefine women as being under everybody, um, you know, the 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 importance of being. What George Parker specifically would like to see is mandated cultural humility, humility specifically in relation to trans and non-binary people, quote, and others, which means everybody else that she could con- consider marginalised. You know, it's just mandated cultural humility is a very menacing phrase. If you take out the cultural from the the, mini, the the middle and you just say mandated humility and then you restate that, what you get is forced subservience. Um, the cultural is, is, is one of those words that throws people off. They're not sure. What do they mean, cultural humility? To, to whom? To which culture? They get a bit confused and it slows them down when you say mandated cultural mm. humility. But, but that's what it means, is forced subservience to any culture that the, that the stater sees. I sometimes, I sometimes say mandated cultural humility to people and they don't 
They just no. go, oh, that's bad. And I say, no, mandated cultural humility. This is a terrible sentence, a, a phrase. It's very menacing. It, it it invokes ideas of superiority, control, uh, cruelty, oppression, suppression of speech. And we're talking about women giving birth here. This is a very dangerous place to but be. More than that is that non-adherence to the mandated cultural humility actually then puts on the line the career of the practitioner that is caring for that mother and that baby. Now, we As well all know, health and safety of the mother and baby. Exactly. And we all know the effect of a mandate. Now, um, a, a medical procedure where it is, you know, you're physically placing a needle into an arm and you're saying you do not have an option to do that in order to continue what you're doing. That is a very tangible, visceral thing. Yes. But what, you know, putting a definition behind mandated cultural humility, yes. as you said, what culture, what defines humility, whose perceived reality are you measuring this against and who is the authority that gets to authorise what that actually is. And anywhere in the, those guidelines is the, those objectives and things outlined and specifically listed yes. so you know what you're measuring yourself against. Yes, that's right. That's absolutely right. And, and the... Um... So that's that's one of the elements of of the free speech argument. You get the the compelled speech and censored speech. You know, it's 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 only one part of it to say you're not allowed to say this anymore. It's actually easier to stop saying things than it is to force people to say things that they don't believe. <clears throat> and the and the midwifery council is attempting to do both. They're attempting to force midwives to say things that they don't believe. For example, the Fano has a baby. That's not true. The, the woman or wahine has a baby and the whānau is hopefully delighted, um, you know, and supportive, mm. but they're not the ones actually having the baby. Um, they can force midwives to say kahu pōkai. They can force them to, they're attempting to to force them to use te reo Māori in situations where that may not be appropriate. I object to this. I object to this as a linguist. I object. I, I just object. Full stop. Um, I object to the translations that they're providing for the Te Reo Māori words. They're not accurate. They're not being forthright. They're not being honest about what they're calling, what they're saying. Um, I think that that that, that offends me. Uh, English will recover. From this time, it's a global language. You know, we it will recover from wokeish. It will probably be changed, but it will recover. Whereas Te Reo Māori is one of the most vulnerable languages on the planet. Mm. Um, well, it's and, because it's such yeah. an involving language. I mean, in its uh, infancy, it was actually a very, very limited language, which has now. I mean, I can't remember the percentage, but I think there are new words, new reo that have been created. Uh, more new rail that have been created what in the last 200 years than that that has been in the entire history of the language. So, and that's the problem with the wokish, isn't it? Because they then take words like fano and um, they, which is an established word, but they redefine it just as the wokish have taken the word racism and redefined that. And yeah. whilst, and as you said, internationally with English, you can potentially move that back. With Rayo, unless you're somebody who is an advocate for the language uh, to do that, that's not going to happen. And from what I see, most of those are in that Te Reo space in terms of perpetrating and, and expanding and uh, keeping that language alive. They're contributors to the problem. So yeah. Yeah. But that's, I think, another whole conversation of the to, yes, to so, one side. I mean, the, the thing about language is that any language on earth is capable of expressing an infinite number of ideas. If you wanted to, in any language, you could write a never-ending sentence or say a never-ending sentence. And all languages have concepts and ideas that don't exist in others. So when we talk about languages being lost, it's not about whether or not they 
they were large or spoken by a lot of people. It's about what they represent in terms of the human contribution to the story overall, our overall human story. And each language is a chapter, if you like. You know, every language tells a story, and it's and it's uh, and each time that we pass this on to our children. In our language, we pass on the sum total of our culture, which is everything we've ever known and absorbed from our parents, and we do this with our language and our stories. Once Tereo is changed, fundamentally altered, and the meanings of the modern words have been redefined so that they no longer bear any resemblance to the old words, the link between old Reo from our childhood, if, if we're roughly the same age, um, will be gone by the time that we are in our 80s, you know, mm. because the last speakers will also be gone. And those links, we can see the break the break in an oral tradition, in an oral language from the arrival of Europeans. There is a break there. There is a continuity break in the language. And now we're looking at another one where there is a massive push to fundamentally alter not only the language but the history so that people can can no longer actually determine what is true and what is not of te reo Māori, which is an ancient language, in fact. It's not, uh, you know, in, in and of itself as a Polynesian language, it's relatively new. But as a as uh, as what's his name the chap the Tahitian chap who came with James Cook, um, I forget. Uh, um, but he was a translator and he was able to speak Tereo from his own language, showing how connected it is to all the other Polynesian languages around the Pacific. And then that's a, that is a, a journey, a linguistic journey of tens of thousands of years. So when we talk about Te Reo Māori being altered and fundamentally changed to represent something dark, actually, and and unpleasant and hurtful, this is offensive to me in every possible way. Mm. Um, and 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 it distresses me that the language that that all these people are saying they want to protect, they're all out there, the midwifery council saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to have te tiriti or waitangi embedded in the in midwifery practice and we're, we're treaty honouring midwives and our, our reo is going to increase every day and, and all of this. This is just a cultural theft, mm. you know, it's, it's linguistic damage. It's, it's wrong. It's really mm. wrong. Um, and then when we start looking at some of the translations, the things that they are saying in Te Reo Māori in that document, you would never, ever get away with in English, ever. Um, and I think that that's outrageous too. And a lot of people are, are looking at the scope. When I look outside in the world and I see people's reactions, they're saying things like, oh, uh, we're all being forced to speak you know, te reo and, and why are they doing this? You know, we don't want to speak te reo and, and why are they? Well, it's not like that. They're actually doing this to te reo. It's going to have a much worse impact mm -hmm. on the language than it is in English. Um, and, and then, of course, one of the things, as Di said, she really objects to it because what then happens is those that under, don't understand the nuance that yeah. we're discussing now, they just yeah. look at it and they just literally go, oh, it's those bloody Māori again. That's exactly right, and they get blamed all over the place for absolutely mm. everything, and it's wrong. Um, and and Di has gone on, uh, she has done a, a wonderful video with Katrina Biggs on her YouTube channel, which talks a little bit about some of these translations, but I'll just mention it again here now. Um, one of the one of the things that I see everywhere is, oh, um, why are they still called midwives? Wife is a woman's word. Why are they called that? Um, and this was something that interested me as well when I first started looking at all the language. I thought, why have they taken all the words for women and not midwife? What does kahu pōkai mean? Well, now we know why they can't translate that um, and why they've kept midwife. Because when you translate kahu pōkai, as Dai has, has beautifully um, elucidated with Katrina, what you get is nothing that resembles midwife. Um, you know, the meanings ha include things like stillbirth and birds of prey. And you, the, 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 the phrase kahu or the word kahu can be applied as a prefix to other words to, to change the meaning. Um, so you get kahu in its first 
first iteration as a noun, it is a bird of prey. It is a hawk, a harrier, a bird that eats meat with talons and rips and tears with beaks and whatnot. This is not a midwife figure. Then you get into the second meaning, which is to do with cloaks, feathered cloaks primarily, but also dogskin cloaks, seal, seal cloaks, painted cloaks, dyed cloaks, cloaks of mourning, cloaks that one might send to distant relatives to keep the flames of resentment alive over a death. Um, you know, these are these are the translations. Nothing to do with childbirth until you get to around about meaning number three, which is where you start to see things like farikahu, um, which is the uh, a shed erected for high-born women. Uh, this is a concept that we don't need in midwifery. High-born women. Uh, no, thank you. They have attempted to to change. They've, I've been watching what they've been doing. And every time they put one of these new definitions up, they go to the Williams Dictionary and they write it word for word, the definition that they've, they've cherry-picked out, and they change one or two things. So, for example, in, when they're talking about the new name for the Midwifery Council and they're talking about kahu, they have selected from this series of meanings that is available cloak and they've changed cloak which is a very it's a tangible cloak it's an actual cloak they've changed it to a metaphorical meaning so that it now acts as a sort of a like a shield you know mm -hmm. they've stretched this meaning um and then the one of the third references to kahu is about uh, stillbirth about the amniotic sac surrounding the fetus and it's very specific in the dictionary that this is a fetus that um that we're that we're that it's, it's animal in nature this conversation um they're talking about the membrane surrounding the fetus but on the midwifery council website they've changed this meaning entirely a wonderful cloak surrounding they're acting as the membrane enveloping the baby no not baby fetus, fetus. we're talking about stillbirth here we're talking about still the spirit of a stillborn child and birds of prey and and cloaks of uh, you know that are sent to to keep resentment alive. Um, and then on the following page, when we start to get into the the references to other other words with the prefix kahu, we come across uh, kahukura, the Atua of the rainbow, the rainbow gods. So this is the these are the meanings that are that are publicly available, commonly available for anyone with a Williams dictionary. If you look up Kahu Pokai online, just in the Tiara dictionary, it doesn't exist. It's not a term. Midwife is Wahine Fakafano or Kai Fakafano. These are the words for midwife. They basically translate to birthing woman, which is a very standard. So why have, do they not want to use that? They don't want to use it. Um, there's a there's a variety of reasons. They have removed all of the words for women and babies and childbirth and breastfeeding because once you do this, you have dehumanized and defemalized and uh, the entire process of childbirth. The baby, who now is no longer a baby but is simply a, 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 a part an of an object, an object, can then be sold, traded, uh, gifted shared uh, there's no connection here with any mother there's no connection here with any woman um they one of the things that is most fascinating about wokers woke wokish as a as a code is that or it has the 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 uh, the meaning that we can all see that sits that makes all of our the, the, our shoulders go up and the hair stand up on the back of our neck and we don't like it, and then you can get down to the next layer, which is where you figure out what they're actually saying, and then you get down to the next layer, which is the bit that even they don't see. Mm -hmm. So the bit that's actually really revealing, you know, um, where where you look at these definitions and and you think, have they actually thought about this? No. They thought about this, you know. Have they thought about the fact that they're describing themselves as birds of prey, a host of birds of prey who care for stillborn mm. fetuses? 
No, you know, are they have they thought about the fact that they're describing themselves as the rainbow gods? No, you know, some of them, I believe, the true believers, do know this. And they believe that they're they're ushering in a brave new future. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now look, I just want to summarize some stuff before we because there's a couple of points that I just want to get to before we go. Now, so so if you've been listening to all of this, so we've got the we have the scope that has been essentially corrupted and co-opted by uh, ideologues, essentially, largely outside of the group of peers. So they have been contracted to do this. They've gone and taken this new scope, put it out for submission. 90% of people are not happy. The council then, in turn, quietly ignores the 90%, puts the document out and just quietly slips it in at the end of the year. So I've got two questions that I want to sort of summarise and finish on, and I know you can do both. One, the first one is, is where is the Council of Midwives on this? And two, is it's it ain't over yet in the sense that has it been gazetted, has it actually gone through, and is there an opportunity with the new coalition government to actually roll some of this back? So let's finish on those two points. Okay, so the, uh, the College of Midwives? Yes, you... the College of Midwives. Where are they on this? Um, teetering. Um, still still holding the line, um, but they're, they're struggling. You know, they've got a lot of captured leadership, um and and there the push for the midwifery council is to capture the college once they do that of course then they can indoctrinate every midwife who comes through so this is a very important goal for the ideologues at the midwifery council and they're they're fighting hard mm, because uh, this new scope if it gets passed will weed out those yes. that will oppose Yes. And then if they capture the college, they then can indoctrinate a fresh batch to replace, correct? Yes. It, I mean, so so the, so the scope itself um, is designed. The re, one of the reasons that they focused on the scope specifically was so that, that they could do this to midwifery education. They looked at what um, that, that what was what needed to be done. The original plan was simply to to go for the education uh, requirements and to re-educate all the midwives but then they realized they couldn't do that unless they rewrote the scope so that's why they did this so that they had this grounding that underpinned everything so then they could force all of the education to go along Um, because of course you can't make the college do this if you don't have a scope that says that's Mm. how you practice so that's one thing that they're doing um in the midwife in the college of midwives as i understand it they are still holding the line and saying no we don't we don't think this is a good scope but as i say there are um there are a lot of captured midwives at the college and they're very determined so if this passes the college will fall that's my opinion Mm. And in terms of where it is, in terms of being passed into legislation so it can be enacted on against any midwife under the HPPCA, where are we at with that? Has it been gazetted or is it just in the fact that they have released it as they have ratified it, but it's not actually been codified into law? Where where are we at in that space? Where we're at, um, it hasn't been codified into law. And as far as I know, it hasn't yet gone to Shane Reti. So the process is that once they have completed whatever steps they were that they were going to undertake, then the scope goes to Minister for Health Shane Reti. Once he has it, he is required by law to present it to the House. That is part of the legislation, the secondary legislation that governs scopes of practice. Uh, They must the health minister must present it in the House of Representatives. And one of the questions that I have been trying to answer now for a couple of months, and it's possible that the reason I can't find the answer is that this has never actually been tested before. The House, it says in the secondary legislation that governs the process of a scope of practice, that the House may disallow it. Now, whether that means that they disallow it because they're um, busy that day and they don't have time for the scope of practice or they want to reschedule 
or whether they can disallow it because they have some actual kind of problem with it isn't clear in that legislation wording. So if anybody listening knows, I'd, I'd really like to know that answer. Once it goes to... Um, once it goes to the House, the odds are that they will allow it. And then from there, it goes through to the Regulations Review Committee. Yeah. No, uh, so so there is still avenues that even though they ignored 90% of people in terms of their negative response, that you can actually start petitioning things in the House. Uh, so I, I was just looking up while you were saying that who those people are. So you've got Dr. Shane Reddy, but uh, Casey Costello. I mean, is she Casey a potential um, ear that would be open to looking at this open to it but she may not have any actual authority to to do anything the the minister of health is is the one who has to advance any scope um Mm. it's just part of his the legislation so it has to come across his desk we uh certainly mwk are hoping that new zealand first will carry it forward as well in their coalition discussions and their meetings mm-hmm. uh, so that there's pressure from within government as well as you know on Shane Reddy as well as from the public the best thing the public can do right now is to write to Shane Reddy and say you know and to sign Deb Hayes's petition because that petition uh, out of the first 90 petitions available online it's one of the only five that have anywhere over 4,000 signatures people care about this mm. please sign it um, it, the petitions office have buried it on page nine. Um, if you are struggling to find it, uh, Google Deb Hayes midwifery petition and you will get to a link to it. Um, it's out there. And the other thing is to, well, I say this to everybody, but so when, we've, when we're talking about the midwifery council, please email Shane Reddy. Please, uh, please sign the petition. Um, Keep your eye open for anything from the Midwifery Council because their whole pattern of behaviour has been to be underhanded about this entire process. Um, They haven't given it up. They have been forced to make a public statement on the matter, which I don't think they were, I think they were hoping not to have to do. Three days after the article that I wrote in December came out, they took the scope of practice down from their website without explanation and they haven't put it back. I do have a copy, which I took as a web archived snapshot version from the 5th of December so it's an updated copy which is now no longer available so if anybody wants a hard copy of the scope of practice dated the 5th of December um, I I can provide that Um, the other uh, and certainly on the article uh, as well the midwifery uh, mandated cultural humility article um, I've updated the scope of practice link in there as well with another archived version so that anyone can access it and see what we're talking about here. Um, please do that. On the side of the uh, side of the scope of practice, there are links to all of the documents that they used, videos of them speaking, and you know it, you can see the brainwashing. Um, they've provided documents that they used for their indoctrina- indoctrination, all kinds of things. So it's a very valuable. Mm. And I think this is quite important too, and part of the reason it's important because is that the Midwifery Council is the first one to have gone this far. And if they are successful, the Nursing Council and the New Zealand Medical Council will be very, very close behind because I know particularly in the New Zealand Medical Council and the Nursing Council, they are absolutely chomping at the bit to follow down this pathway. Yeah. There are key stakeholders who want to, to go in the same direction. And some of the same stakeholders are working across all three entities. And yeah. In this country at this moment, the way our legislation is structured, unlike other countries, so unlike Australia, unlike Canada, unlike the United States, our medical bodies only have one registration source within their own professions. There are no current alternatives. Alternatives have attempted to be set up. They're currently going through the courts at the moment. And as I've mentioned and alluded to before, I will talk about that more extensively when I can. We don't have that right now. So we have the framework that we're given and the battleground that's very real. And the battleground right now is with this um, new code and uh, with the the Midwifery Council and the power that they will wield over midwives to control, coerce, and effectively change how they can practice over woolly language 
that has no definition and is completely dependent on the thoughts and the ideologies of whoever is sitting on a panel of their peers when it comes to a disciplinary um, action. And that in itself is scary and dangerous. And we saw that with COVID. We saw how people reacted with COVID. There is absolutely no reason that when it comes to ideology and gender that that, does, that doesn't change. So th- it, it it is really quite scary. And, and you're absolutely right. This is a test case. Um, this The midwifery, if we can stop the scope of practice as a nation, it's going to have impacts. You know, if we're successful in actually saying no to the council and forcing them to, to stop doing this, that's going to impact midwifery councils all around the world um, because women's organisations everywhere are battling with these same issues um, and we've we've caught them in time. You know, we have caught them in time. We've got time to say to Shane Reddy, no. You know, we've got time to say to the midwifery council, no, but it needs the public. We need the public. public. And the midwives need us too. They're overworked, underpaid, they're an aging workforce, and they didn't ask for this. No, no. And they would, I, I just, look, I, I know some midwives, um, some who mandated out, some who have gone back, and they, no, you're right, they did not ask for this. Just a couple of things. So I'm talking, obviously, with Sarah uh, Henderson. We are discussing what is going on currently with the scope of practice from the Midwifery Council. Do reference the Plain Sight um, article December 8, 2023, Mandated Cultural Humility for New Zealand Midwives, It's a great resource if you're wanting to look at a lot of the information we've discussed. And to be brutally honest, we've only just scratched the surface. One number, a couple of numbers I want to finish with that that this is what chilled the marrow of my bones because the scope of practice that is out there at the moment and proposed did not address this. And that is in the four years that it took to create the scope of practice. Approximately 40 New Zealand women died during childbirth or shortly thereafter, and 2,600 is the appropriate number, um, the approximate number of babies who died in childbirth or shortly thereafter in the same time. I'm sorry, Sarah, that's chilling. Yes, it is. It's really, very chilling. And that those those figures haven't changed for 15 years. You know, women are so still... So how is the scope going to improve those numbers? It isn't, you know. We we know that it isn't, um, despite the fact that the uh, the midwifery council insists that it. There's a direct quote: "Will set a standards of excellence never before seen in the health sector." And I, I'm sorry, but I, I don't agree mm. that. I call bullshit on that one, but I bullshit too. Yes. <laughs> so hey, look, Sarah, this is this is going to be unfolding across the year. So this isn't going to be our first conversation. I know that already. There is. I believe that for us now, the the battle lines are now drawn, the fight has just begun, and this is why we're here at RCR. So I so appreciate your time this morning. If you're listening to all of this in a state of absolute disbelief, or you have something that you want to share, you've had an experience in terms of things with your midwives, or you want to have support, or any of the things, any of the themes that Sarah has brought up this morning, 2057 is the number to text it into or inbox at realitycheck.radio. As I said before, that article is plain sight, December 8. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really do appreciate it. You're so welcome. Thank you. I hope that wasn't too too boring. Um, No, it was fascinating. And I think that, yeah, as I said, this is just the beginning. So that's uh, Sarah Henderson here with Reality Check Radio. And don't disappear, still more great content here to come with Counterculture with Marie. With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom by simply visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today.